Thank you very much, Holly. In light of discussing Mark's gospel, dealing with Peter and the ten falling away and Judas betraying Jesus, but particularly Peter and the eleven, he held them fast. And you may be going through some difficulty, you may be going through a tough time. You come to faith in Christ, it's not an issue of your great ability. It's an issue of God's and Christ's ability to hold us, to keep us. As Jude mentions, along with other passages, that it rests on what God has done and what Christ is doing. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. And as we look at a portion of Mark this morning, we want to be attentive hearers, doers, living out your word in the world in which we live. And we know we live in perilous times. We hear of all kinds of news, almost on a daily basis, that we would say is not good. But yet we know we can live with confidence because of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Many of us would know the account of Joseph, who as a young lad was the favorite of his favorite son of his father. And we know that his father gave him a coat of many colors. And he went was sent by his father to his brothers to find out how they were doing in the fields taking care of sheep. And as a brother saw Joseph coming, they connived against him. Some wanted to kill him, but it was decided ultimately, you know, he would be thrown into a pit. He was thrown into a pit, and later he was pulled from the pit, and he was sold into slavery. He ended up in Egypt. He ended up in Potiphar's house. And we know that in Potiphar's house, he had God's blessing. He did well. But we also know that Mrs. Potiphar, day after day, according to Scripture, would hound him, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And he kept saying no. And one day when there was no one else in the house... She grabbed him by his garment and said, come to bed with me. And according to the scriptures, he fled, leaving the garment in her hands. We know that Mrs. Potiphar lied about what happened. Potiphar became infuriated and he was treated unjustly and he was thrown in prison and spent time in prison. And then he interpreted dreams while in prison and he asked to be remembered by one of the men who, who he interpreted dreams for. And again, time passed before he got out of prison. But he was treated unjustly. And in that context, Joseph says to his brothers, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph, in the midst of injustice, 
who later became basically second in command in Egypt, could say about his being treated unjust, God sent me here. It was God's will that I would be treated in an unjust manner. Have we stopped to consider that injustice may be normal for believers as they live out their faith on this side of eternity? Should we welcome injustice, whether it be in our own country or other countries, as an opportunity for God to be glorified in the body of Christ? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we find that Jesus is going through what we would say is an unjust trial, looking at a little different angle than we did last week. But Mark 14, beginning with verse 53, Mark 14 and verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I would destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any why do we need any more witnesses? he asked. You heard the blaspheme. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, Prophesy. The guards took him and beat him. Go back to verse 53, we find who is involved, it says they. The crowd that took Jesus in verses 43 through 52, who were armed with swords and clubs, they were involved. Obviously, Jesus is involved. The high priest, Caiaphas, along with the chief priest, elders and teachers of the law are also involved. And it's interesting, again, to find that it is the religious leaders that are out to condemn Jesus. They're defensive. They're responding to what has happened. If you turn earlier in Mark to chapter 11, verses 27 and 28. I'm sorry, Mark 11, 12 through 18. We know that Jesus is leaving Bethany. He was hungry. He sees a fruit tree and so on. But in verse 15, it says, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. (coughs) He overturned the tables of the money changers 
and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you made it a den of robbers. The chief priests, teachers of the law, heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because they knew the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Then in chapter 12, 1 through 12, Jesus gave the account, the parable of the tenants. We know that the owner of the vineyard sent one after another, and finally he sent his son. And in verse 12 it says, Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. We find the religious leaders are looking for a way to eliminate Jesus. They want to kill him. We also find in this passage in Mark 14 that Peter is involved. Peter follows at a distance, but he ends up in the courtyard of the high priest. We know later on he denies knowing Christ. There's false witnesses involved in verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. So here's Jesus supposed to be getting a trial, but false witnesses are involved. We find the guards are involved also. If you look in verse 65 at the end of the verse, and the guards took him and beat him. So we have a scene where Jesus is being led away to be tried. We find Peter follows at a distance and he ends up in the courtyard. And then the chief priest, the whole Sanhedrin, are looking for ways to take care of Jesus. R. Kent Hughes says in his commentary in Mark, and I quote, It was already past midnight, but the Sanhedrin came flocking in by torchlight from every corner of the city. Jesus was placed in the middle of the sizable torch-lit hall. The Sanhedrin, 71 in number, took their places as an elevated semicircle around Jesus. To the left and to the right were court clerks prepared to take notes on the evidence submitted. Presiding was Joseph Caiaphas, high priest and president of the Sanhedrin. He was an unusually powerful high priest who would serve for 19 years, <coughs> far beyond the average term of four years. His surname, Caiaphas, the inquisitor, fit him well, for now he was presiding over the most infamous inquisition in history. Though the assembly had all the trappings of a legal proceeding, it was not legal. Or according to its own rules, it was not to make final judgments at night. Nor was it to go out, do so outside its sacred chambers in the temple. Nor was a capital offense to be determined during the Passover, just to name a few items that were illegalities. Nevertheless, they began their charade, looking first for the unanimous evidence from two witnesses, which was necessary for the conviction of capital offenses. End of quote. Jesus is on trial by the chief priest, or the high priest, rather, the chief priest, the elders 
and the teachers of the law, ultimately by the Sanhedrin. They're looking for evidence, clearly stated in verse 55, against Jesus so they could put him to death. But the text states they couldn't find any. But in verse 56, many testified falsely against him. But even then, their statements did not agree. So you're on trial. Someone stands up and testifies, another person, another person. But there's no agreement. The text goes on. In verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Turn over to John chapter 2 for just a moment. John chapter 2. Let's read a few verses there of the account of what Jesus was speaking of concerning the destruction of the temple. John 2 and verse 19 Well, verse 18, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So the false witnesses are saying, oh, he spoke of the temple being destroyed and he's going to raise it in three days. But he was referring to the temple of his body. But again, false testimony. And in verse 60, then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. We won't turn there, but in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, we find that the prophecy is made about Jesus, that he would be silent. He would be led as a sheep to slaughter. And you can take a sheep to slaughter. You can take a sheep to kill. And I think Zach would verify this. And they have no idea what's going to happen. That's the way Jesus was. He knew what was going to happen. But the context of Isaiah was, he went as a sheep. He didn't resist. He went. Willingly. Jesus remained silent. Do you ever have someone say something false about you, a false testimony against you? If you're ever in a principal's office and you're in trouble and the principal says, I understand this happened and this happened. Here's the kids and what they're saying. And you think, that's not true. What do you want to do? You want to defend yourself. Or mom and dad are saying, now tell us what happened. And sister will say, or brother will say, That's not the way it was. That's not what happened. We get very defensive. Jesus remained silent. So the high priest 
ask a very pointed question in 61. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Very pointed. Jesus silent to this point. But Jesus responds, I am. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, you, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Speaking of Christ, Revelation 1 and verse 7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. The chief priest is getting more than he bargained for. He poses the question, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. Jesus responds, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Our can't use, again in his commentary, and I quote, Jesus did not have to answer, but now was a chosen time. I am, said Jesus. And as their mouths dropped in surprise, surprise pleasure, he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. It was both a confession and a terrible warning, alluding to the three Old Testament messianic passages to tell them that he was their coming judge. Isaiah 52, 8 says, When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Psalm 110, 1 adds, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Daniel seven thirteen records, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. You're judging me, but I will judge you, Jesus was saying. These were his own words to the leadership of Israel. They were terrible, but the Sanhedrin did not have ears to hear. End of quote. Throughout the book of Mark, we find that Jesus is clearly stated to be God's son, beginning in Mark chapter 1. But we find as you go through the book of Mark, there's something that was not associated with Jesus other than by his trying to tell the 12, and that was his suffering. Here we find in the context of the trial of Jesus, his being falsely accused, that he openly states that suffering and the Son of God go hand in hand. It's in the context of his trial that this is being brought out. So what does a high priest do? The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. 
You've heard the blaspheme. What do you think? You've heard the blaspheme. Why do we need any more witnesses? It's interesting that the chief priest calls it blaspheme without considering that it may be true. He does not take the evidence of Jesus' teaching and miracles into consideration. He was looking for condemnation, not evidence. The decision had been made before the trial of Jesus that they were going to kill him. But in order for that to be legal, they needed some type of evidence. It's interesting that Jesus provides that evidence for them. Jesus, in his response, I am, was condemning himself. False testimony, but when asked, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am. Jesus had to answer that way. That's who he was. For him to say no would have been a lie, would have been deceit. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, we know that a voice came from heaven and this is my beloved son. In Mark 2, 27 and 28, we find that Jesus speaks about the fact that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 12, verses 1 through 12, he there says, the owner of the vineyard sends his son. And we know that the religious leaders recognized that Jesus was speaking of himself, who was going to be killed by them. It's interesting that Jesus in the midst of not having any evidence against him, he condemns himself. That's like the believer in China when being asked a pointed question, are you a follower of the way? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Yes, you're dead. No, you'll live. And they say yes. Condemning themselves. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blaspheme. What do you think? Now, the high priest had a hard time grasping this. Oh, he is the son of the blessed one. He tears his clothes. Because now he has the evidence that he wanted along with the chief priest, the elders and the teachers of the law. What is the result? They condemn him as worthy of death. He's worthy to die. They spit at him. You ever have anyone spit at you? This happened to me one time, and I'm not sure it was a good response or not, but I could have gotten some legal trouble probably. But there was a child who was giving some difficulty years ago in Awana, and I was asked to do something with the child, and because of the child's size, I picked the child up, you know, held him, and the child said to me, I'm going to spit in your face. 
I said, you spit in my face, I'll spit in your face. He didn't spit. He said, I'm going to kick you. I said, you can kick me, but I can kick too. I'm not sure it was a wise response. But the idea of spitting in a face. What if I called Lee to come up here? And I said, hey, buddy, Lee, how are you doing? And, you know, spit in his face. They spit in his face. What else did they do? They blindfold him. They strike him with their fist and say, prophesy. And then the guards took him out and beat him. They distorted the truth or attempted to distort the truth until Jesus came along and said, here's truth. I am the son of the blessed one. Yes, I am. But please understand that in condemning Jesus, they were condemning themselves because they're rejecting Jesus the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus chose to speak the truth which condemned him. In essence, he chose to condemn himself. Why? He had to speak the truth. He was fulfilling his Father's will. And he faithfully fulfilled his Father's will. But in the midst of fulfilling the will of the Father, he did not crack. Why? He watched. He prayed. So what's the point of this passage? Jesus continues to demonstrate the fact that he was prepared for watching and praying for three hours. And on just trial, and false accusations do not influence him. He knew the trial and crucifixion were coming. He was simply being obedient. He said, it's not fair, it's not just. That was in the Father's will. That was what God, his Father, had called him to. But he was prepared. He didn't crack. I would pose a question in light of Christ and who he is. Have you come to Christ in repentance? And faith. Is he your savior? He came, he went through an unjust trial so that there can be life. I'm posing a question. How did the Roman believers hear this? How did the Roman believers hear Mark 14, 53 through 65? Going through persecution for their faith. We know that Nero and other Roman rulers did not treat Christians very well. They knew that they would die for their faith. They may have their property confiscated. They may bring, or they may spend time in prison. In light of the text, I think they would have heard, we must be prepared through watching and praying or being blessed through the persecution we face. Some of us will die due to our faith in Christ. Can you envision that we are the Roman church going back some 2,000 years ago? And we know that some of us are going to be persecuted, having our property confiscated, 
And some of us are going to go to the lions and others to the wild beast. And as a body of believers, we're praying to God, God, we want to be faithful. So that when it comes our turn to be taken to the wild beast, we will say, yes, we're a child of God. We know Christ. We're a Christ follower. Caesar is not Lord. And we want to die well. I think they would have been encouraged to watch and to pray. I think also they may have heard Christ suffered an unjust triumph crucifixion. Should we expect any less since we're to desire and to know, experience the sufferings of Christ? Should we expect life to be an ease all, at ease all the time? Some of us may die. It may not be just. They confiscated our property and it wasn't just. We didn't get a fair shake. That's okay. Neither did Christ. Perhaps they thought we need to think the following. God is working out his sovereign will for us. As we are persecuted through evil men like Nero, God's grace is sufficient. We will not demand escape or justice. God's sovereign will for Christ was death. God's sovereign will for many believers down through the pages of church history. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, thousands of people died down through the pages of church history in their faith for Christ. The Roman believers thinking, this is God's sovereign will for us as we're persecuted through evil men like Nero. Perhaps they also had to stop and think Christ is central, or knowing Christ is central, not justice a fair trial, or keeping our possessions. We're aliens and strangers in the Roman Empire. We shouldn't expect justice since the rulers don't yield to God and the Christ. What would happen next week if Daniel came and said, church has got to help me. I lost all my retirement funds. What happened to them? They found out I was a Christian. They took them all. And we say, well, that's not just. I know, but I've already been told I may as well not even try because they're gone. Scott and Darlene come a couple weeks from now, and they say, uh, we have the clothes on our back. We don't have any place to stay. Can you help us? What do you mean, can we help you? They confiscated our property because of our faith in Christ. They took it. That's not just. No, it's not just, but we've already been told, you can do what you want, but you'll never get it back because of your faith. In Christ. Roman believers being encouraged to keep a focus on Christ in the midst of persecution for their faith. Christ is God's Son. He focused on obedience in light of eternity. We will suffer short term to enjoy God and Christ and our reward eternally. 
There's more to life than ease, justice, material possessions, power, and status. Again, the church in Rome being encouraged. Think about the persecuted church today. We in America face very little persecution. But there are countries today that when they read Mark and what Christ went through in light of the applications we made to the Roman church, they would say, oh, yeah, that's how we need to apply it. But if tomorrow you were confronted on the job and were told to lie for your boss, and you said no, and he said, why can't you? Because I'm a Christian. He said, then you're fired. What would you do? You're in school, and the teacher says, will you deny that God is creator? There is no God. I can't do that. Then you get a zero. See, there are forms of persecution already taking place in our country. There are businesses that have been persecuted greatly because of what they may stand for. There are professors in our universities that have lost their jobs for the simple reason they're a Christian. There are students that have taken a much lower grade because they were willing to say, I believe in a creator God. We don't know what's coming in our world, in our country, but we do know Christ. And he would say, watch and pray. In just a moment, we're going to sing together, Be Thou My Vision. But I want you to think about a person in Iraq, Iraq, a young lady in her teen years, decided to do a study on religions, Muslim, family was Muslim, but wanted to do a study on religions of the world. And she ordered a correspondence course, and there she learned about Christianity. And at the completion of her correspondence course, they sent her a certificate of completion. And they also sent her a Bible. She began to read the Bible. One day she was reading the Bible in the privacy of her bedroom, and she was the favorite child of her father, and her father spoiled her and catered to her because she was part of an upper-class family in Iraq. And as she was lost in thought reading about Christ, her father came in the room, not hearing her father He grabbed the Bible and saw what she was reading. And he began to beat her. An older brother came in and began also to beat her. And told her that you must die because you're reading the Bible. You must be a follower of Christ. She didn't have opportunity to respond. She knew that death was coming. They'd taken her possessions and put them in the center of the room. Knew that she had no recourse. That night, she crawled out her bedroom window and fled for her life, not knowing where she would go. 
She ended up with an uncle in a distant city and lasted there for several weeks until someone saw her and recognized her and reported to her father, and she knew that her father would, and brother would be there within hours to kill her. And she ended up fleeing for an extended period of time, and at this time is living, but still hiding from her family because she knew Christ. Her vision, as she came to understand Christ, changed. And think about our lives and how we live and how we respond. And hymn 400, Be Thou My Vision.